Good morning, church. Thanks for coming out. A little rainy Sunday morning. Uh, glad to have you guys with us. As I was preparing for this, I was thinking back to uh, uh, Felix Baumgartner and the Red Bull Stratos. Did you guys remember hearing about this or seeing this? It was about a month ago, and uh, this Aust- Austrian, this guy from Austria, not Australia, this Austrian guy basically gets in this little capsule, okay? And this capsule gets filled up with helium, and it takes him up 24 miles above Earth, okay? 24 miles. We're talking stratosphere. We're talking like almost space. It's like way up there. And for some reason, he decides to open up the door to his capsule and jumps out, okay? And he jumps out of this capsule 24 miles above the earth and starts plummeting, okay? Just falling. He is just going, okay? And at one point, if you see the video, he's like tumbling. He is not in control, just completely tumbling. At one point, is going 800 miles per hour and breaks the speed of sound, As a person, human, just like falling, he breaks the speed of sound over 800 miles an hour, gets control of his fall, pulls his parachute, lands safely on earth, and like literally like walks off his parachute, like just like lands it and is like... But like his history, if you look back at where he came from, like he was just like a boy in Austria that had a love for flying. And through like the course of his life and kind of what he went through, he ended up joining the Austrian Air Force and that led him to being a jumper for them and that led him into this like life of base jumping. If you know what base jumping is, it's basically like jumping off of like buildings and things with a parachute on and then you land and run off, okay? So he is like, he has done this whole thing, his whole life has kind of prepared him for this moment. This magnificent, awesome moment where he did this Red Bull Stratos thing. It makes me think of another guy uh, from Denison, Texas, a really small city outside of Abilene. Uh, And in 1890, uh, this man was born. He grew up in a house uh, uh, with a a strong work ethic and a a strong uh, Christian foundation. And through the years growing up, he, uh, he, he learned leadership and, and learned uh, uh, just kind of like a self-reliance and learned how to be uh, a strong leader. And this man grew up to become the supreme commander of allied forces in World War II. Dwight Eisenhower led our, our nation and our troops into one of the greatest battlefronts we've ever been a part of. And then also was our president from 1953 to 1961. And what I see in in both of these men, and what I think we'll look at a little bit today, is that these men were prepared throughout their life for these magnificent moments. That all through their life, they were being prepared and groomed and developed for their moment. And what we're going to see in 1 Kings 17 today is the same thing, that God is preparing a man for something amazing. And what I think we'll notice is that he's doing the same in our lives. We may never be uh, jumping out of capsules 24 miles above the earth. I probably won't be. Uh, And we may never be president of the United States, although my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Worsham, did tell me that I was going to be president one day. Uh, What I do think is that that the Lord has specific things for us, specific moments, magnificent moments for us and for our lives. So we're going to look at this man from the Old Testament, Elijah, in 1 Kings 17. And I'm confident that the Lord wants to speak to you this morning. And uh, we're going to notice three things, three specific things from the uh, the chapter uh, we're going to look at today, from 17, uh, that he wants to speak to us about. I want to see where you fit in this. 
You may be all three of these. You may look at all three points we talk about and go, that is me on all, across all three boards. It may be that one of them sticks out more than the other. I want you to look at that. So here we go. Uh, before we start reading in 17, I want to give you the background of where uh, this country is. And so if you, you look back through chapter 16, the very end of 16, what you're basically going to see is, is the background of this country. And, and Israel was at one point in time 12 tribes all underneath one king. So you first had King Saul. He was kind of no heart for God. The way you think about Saul is he had no heart for God. Then you think about David, and he had a whole heart for God, an entire heart for God. He was the, the leader of all 12 tribes, this kingdom. And then it passed down from David to his son Solomon. Solomon had kind of a half heart for God, okay? He loved God, but then he also loved women and all the idols that they brought with him. Okay, so you have Solomon. Now when Solomon comes away, when he dies and somebody new takes over the throne, his son takes over, his name's Rehoboam, okay? Rehoboam takes over the kingdom and uh, not everybody likes it. So he is only over two of the tribes. It's the southern tribe and they call that Judah. Okay, you with me? So Rehoboam, king over the southern nation called Judah. And so then they put in a new guy in place of the northern 10 tribes named Jeroboam. You with me? So we got Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Israel is the top 10, the northern kingdom led by Jeroboam. That's who we're talking about today. So you know this in the context of all the rest of the Bible. We are talking about the northern kingdom after they've split and been divided. Northern kingdom, Jeroboam, that's where we pick up. And all along from Jeroboam, every king after that is an evil, bad, bad man that leads the nation into idol worship. Okay, every king is worse than the one before that. So if you would look in like 1625, you'll see about a king named Omri who did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. So he's like, I'm worse than all of them. And then his son Ahab takes over. And Ahab, it says in 29, uh, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year. Uh, and he was more wicked than all who came before him. And in verse 33, Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is the environment that Elijah is stepping into. In 17, chapter 17, verse 1, this is the environment that Elijah is stepping into. A nation that has been wrecked by idol worship, being led by these evil, bad men year after year after year into idol worship, to follow after Baal and to worship the Asherah. And this is where we kind of, this is where we jump in. So I'll stop you as we go along, but we've got three main things we want to look at about Elijah. First one here in verse one. Now Elijah the Tishbite who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God uh, of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Uh, let me tell you a little bit here. This is the first kind of point we want to talk about. Is, is let me tell you a little bit about where Elijah came from. He was a Tishbite from the settlers of Gilead, okay? Gilead was this like area uh, on the east side of the Jordan River that was just remote. I'm talking in the middle of nowhere, mountainous. There was not really any cities there. Uh, the idea is like history hasn't even found Tishba, like the city, if you're a Tishbite, they can't even find it, it was so small. This is like, I grew up, I spent five years like third grade through eighth grade in Borger, Texas, B-O-R-G-E-R. -E and I'm talking Borger is West 
Texas panhandle, okay? 15,000 people, middle of nowhere. This is like Friday Night Lights territory, okay? Like the, how, the, the entire city shuts down for football games. Your running back is like, uh, like uh, literally like famous Cornell Jones. I still remember. I was like a sixth grader and I'm like, Cornell Jones is the man. He is awesome. Because he was like the Borger Bulldogs star running back in like 1994. You know, like this is, this is, this is Borger, Texas. In West Texas, they have these things called mesquite trees, Okay. They, we have bushes in Fayetteville that are bigger than their trees, okay? Mesquite trees are like about this tall. That's, that's wilderness. That's out there. And Gilead's even further out. So I'm thinking, well, maybe it's like where my mom grew up, Fairfax, Oklahoma, population 1,500. So we're talking nobody, right? I can walk from one end of the town to the other in like two minutes. There's like nobody really from Fairfax, Oklahoma. So this is like what I picture. Let me just tell you, a Tishbite from Gilead is even further out than Fairfax, Oklahoma. We're talking about a guy that's from the middle of nowhere with no background, no, no learning, no, uh, uh, he didn't attend seminary. He doesn't have uh, uh, this, this credentials of leadership. He wasn't groomed by all the religious leaders of his day. He didn't come from a family, family lineage that was really uh, powerful or, or wealthy. He came from a bunch of goat herders in the middle of the mountains. You know, it, it didn't matter how many, he wasn't some, some preacher that had his podcasts downloaded thousands of times. He's not uh, an author with a book that had sold millions of copies. He was a faithful man that walked up to the king of his nation and said, hey, by the way, uh, it's not gonna rain until I say so, just so you know. And see, what I see uh, with Elijah here and what I think is important for us is that it didn't matter uh, where he had come from, it didn't matter what he had been through, it didn't matter who he was or any of that. His past didn't affect it. He is, he is no longer seen as inadequate uh, by his past. This first blank is really the idea of inadequacy or inadequate. Because we would look at somebody like Elijah and go, but you don't have anything special about you. How could you be a leader for God? How could you do something powerful for God? And see, the world that we live in right now, it glorifies success and achievement. We kind of have to prove ourselves. Everything, I mean, look at the newspaper. Everything is gonna be based on what someone has done or how they have performed. And so what that does is in us now, we, we live lives to prove ourselves to someone else. We have to make sure we have enough money so that our car looks a certain way to compare with our friends. We want our house to have uh, these types of things inside it because we have to show ourselves and prove ourselves. We've gotta be smart enough or, or, or look good enough uh, we have to have the best friends or we have to be the funniest or the strongest or the coolest. Maybe it's our athletics or our grades. But we find our worth then knowing that we are, are better than or we at least kind of show ourselves and prove ourselves to other people. And we kind of struggle with this and we fight with this. That this is where I prove my worth. For some of, the, for some of us, you've been uh, hurt or wounded because someone has pointed out your weaknesses or your failures and you have said, I will never let that happen again. So you hide those weaknesses behind all the success you can muster. You give everything you've got to try to show and prove who you are. And honestly, this is, 
This anxiety and this fear is, is really crippling and exhausting and is not biblical. It makes us feel inadequate to follow God, inadequate to be used by God, inadequate in the way that he made us. And I see the example from Elijah and it doesn't matter where you've come from or what you've been through. Some of us even do this with our relationship with God. We look at our past and we go, I'm not good enough to come to God. All the things I've done, all my sins, all the stuff that I've, that I've been through, my issues, I've got to clean those up first before I can come to God. I've got to get all my things right and my stuff right before I come to the Lord. I'm not good enough to deserve his love. I haven't done enough good things or there's no way he could actually love me the way I am. I've got to get everything together first. Some of us treat God like that and that this, is, this isn't right. You're going, well, Alan, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've come from and what I've been through. You're saying God could never love me. He could never use me. And today you're crippled by the inadequacy of your own past, of your own sins. And I want to tell you today to both of these people that have, have, are crippled by this inadequacy of your, your own uh, uh, beliefs about your past and those that are crippled by this idea of I have to prove myself that the gospel of Jesus Christ answers this. The power of what we believe and what we do answers this. This whole Christian thing answers this. The gospel of Jesus Christ responds that the Son of God came to seek and save the lost, the broken, the hurting, the insecure, the undeserving, the inadequate. It doesn't matter where you have come from, Jesus Christ died for all, for your past, for every fear and anxiety you have. He says to you, you are worthy, you are loved. I accept you just as you are. Do you hear the power of that today? That you are loved and accepted just as you are. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, that, that, that passage says that in Christ Jesus, through him, we are smart enough. Through him, Jesus made us righteous. Through him, we have redemption. Through him, we have sanctification. He's the one that makes us worthy. He's the one that finds us in the muck and the mire of life in our sin and in our past and he pulls us out and says, I love you and you are worthy of, of life in me. Titus 3 says it like this. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Listen to me, you don't have to get right before you come to God. You don't have to be an all-star. You don't have to be uh, anybody special from any special family. Just you as you are with all your past and all your junk. He says, I love you right now. I forgive you and I want to give you new life in me. See, that's the whole point. None of us are good enough. None of us have it all together. We have all fallen short. So you no longer have to struggle with this insecurity or inadequacy to try to prove yourself or to, to feel shame or guilt over your past. You get to walk in the truth that Jesus Christ has saved you and given you new life. Just like he called Elijah out of the middle of nowhere, a man that had no 
special uh, aspects, nothing about him that made him special. But the Lord called him and used him. Just like he can use us. That we are all made adequate by Jesus Christ. All right, we'll keep going here in uh, chapter 17. Let's look at verse two through six. The word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening that he would drink from the book, uh, the brook. So here we go. Uh, what you see uh, in, with Elijah here is that he is being moved by God out into the wilderness to this brook at Cherith, right? With nothing else, with no hope, he's going, I want you to just all alone go move out into the wilderness and be by yourself. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you, but you just need to move out here and go do this. Okay. And I'm sure there's a little bit of Elijah like, you want me to go where? You think you're going to take care of me? Like, what's going on? Like, there's, no, there's nobody else out there. There's no, like, security out there. Like, what's going on? So it makes me think a little bit uh, of what God's trying to teach Elijah in this. He's trying to teach him to fully trust him. God's saying, Elijah, I just want you to trust me with all your heart. I want you to rely on me in the midst of being in the wilderness. Trust me. Makes me think uh, a little bit about uh, boot camp. Um, I've never really been to boot camp, but I saw about it in a movie. Yeah, I know, lame, really, really lame. I have no bearing, uh, like any idea how to like compare this except from Band of Brothers. And so if you remember from Band of Brothers, they go to Camp Tekoa. And at Camp Tekoa, part of what happens to these men is they all come in with independent spirits and independent ideas and how they're gonna live their life. And part of what this role of boot camp was to do was to train them to be dependent on each other, to learn to, to come together and work together to achieve something greater. That they could be stronger together. They could achieve so much more. And so part of this idea was that, that they were learning to trust in where they were going, to be prepared for what's to come, to follow orders and respond to their training. And so for Elijah at the brook, this was really a little bit of boot camp for him. He was learning to trust in the Lord, to fully rely on him, to be shaped and to develop into the man and the leader that God wanted him to be. And so for some of us today, you wake up and you feel like you're in the wilderness, alone by the brook at Cherith, without much hope. And what I want you to see is that God is calling you and drawing you to rely on him, to trust him, that he is teaching and preparing and training you for what's to come. See, some of you woke up today and there's just a heavy weight of depression that you carry. Others are wrestling with maybe the divorce of your parents. Some of you carry bitterness towards an old friend or a family member. Some of you, the wilderness is an intense grief or, or you maybe lost someone close to you. Others of you have spent the week in the hospital caring for someone. Still others are lonely. Some of you, you and your spouse haven't really spoken in weeks. And we walk around carrying these heavy burdens. We feel like we are walking through the wilderness out in the middle of nowhere, lost without hope, without any support around us. 
And we're just like Elijah. And what I want to see, I want you to see today is that the Lord is calling you to fully rely, to trust in him. And some of us are on the opposite end of the spectrum. We're like, we're good. We don't have anything major going on. I can handle whatever comes my way. And really that's kind of what we've developed here in America, right? Is I can handle all these things on my own. I can take care of myself. Whatever happens, I'm good. I'm strong. I've got this. And honestly, college students, I would warn you, I think more than ever, your generation with uh, the helicopter moms you've had, you've been kind of covered and protected all your life, that you're going to hit some hard things. And the question is, can you really handle this? Because you've been shielded and kind of protected by them for a long time. And you're going to walk through some of the wilderness. So will you trust God fully? Because what he's doing here with Elijah is he's saying, I want you to to learn to trust me, to fully rely on me, because I want to shape you to do something more. I want to prepare you for this magnificent moment. And really, this is the idea you see throughout Scripture. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, we were like perfect relationship with God, okay? It was like we were good. It was awesome. We were hanging out with him. All of us were friends. It It was good, okay? But then in Genesis 3, sin enters and everything gets broken, And the rest of the Bible, Genesis 3 through Revelation chapter 1, is this process of God bringing us back into his image. He's bringing us back to Genesis 1 and 2. He wants to bring us back into the image of Christ. That's the whole process. That's why Jesus came. That's this whole thing so that we'd be back in his image. And he gives us a glimpse of that in Revelation of what's going to happen. And so uh, when you see this, uh, this is the idea of what God is doing, bringing Elijah back into the image of Christ. And just like he's working in us, he's wanting to bring us back into the image of Christ. Look at this in Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Don't get caught on those today. We're not talking about them. Leave them alone. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. But listen right here. This is what I want you to see. To become conformed to the image of his son. To become conformed to the image of his son. So see, all the good things, we read this verse and think it's all about he wants us to be happy. What he's saying is, he's saying uh, when God causes all things to work together for good, he's saying I'm causing all things to work together so you will be conformed to the image of his son. He's trying to shape you and he's trying to shape me into the image of Christ. He's trying to take us back to Genesis 1 and 2. See, in all these things, that's what he's doing. And you may need to hear that today. That you are lost in the wilderness or you think you can handle all things on your own. And I want you to hear that the Lord wants to shape you and mold you into the man or woman he wants you to be. That through all we go through, he is shaping and molding us. He is leading us to trust him more to fully rely on him, to give him all of ourselves. Isn't that what he's asking of Elijah? Go out to the wilderness and rely fully on me because I want to make you into the man that's going to be used for God's glory. Okay, let's look at this third one. This is verse 8 through 24. We don't really have time to read it all, so you're just going to have to trust me, uh, and I'll fill in some of the gaps. 
So let's look in eight and nine first. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. And so Elijah goes to this place. It's in a Gentile nation and he goes to this spot and this widow is there and he asks the widow for some water and she gives it to him. And then he asks the widow for some food. And she's like, I don't have any left. We have a small amount of flour left and a small amount of oil. And if you look here in verse 12, but she said, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. So basically this widow and her son have nothing. They have reached the end of their rope. They're at their last leg. This is all the food they have left. They're gonna eat this little bit and then they're gonna die. This is all they have. The very end of their rope, the very last moments that they have. And Elijah steps into the scene. And he says to them, if you'll take care of me, the Lord will not let your flour run out. He will not let your oil run out. And what you see through this passage is that that doesn't happen. Neither one emptied out over time. He continued to provide for Elijah and they continued to have food to eat. But then what you see in 17 is that the widow's son gets sick and he dies. So Elijah takes the boy and he prays over him upstairs in verse 20 and 22. Listen to what happens. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? If you jump to 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. See, when I look back at the story of Elijah here, he's done two things. He has been intentional with this family. He went intentionally and on purpose to this family, to this widow, to their, to their situation. He was intentional with them, and then he was actively involved in their life. He was a part of the things that were happening. We're running out of food, and we don't know what to do about my son that's died, and all these things have happened. He is actively involved. He's providing for them the food through God. He is raising this boy back from the dead, right? He is actively involved. He's intentional with them. And so what I, what I see for us in this is that we have to, to take advantage of and be intentional with the opportunities to be used by God. That we, just like Elijah, go, there are opportunities throughout our day to be used by him to serve and to love and to show Christ. And I think this has become a little lost in our world today because we have become more and more uh, secluded and less and less like inclusive. I mean, think about this. You go on campus, you pop in your white headphones so that you don't have to talk to anybody across your walk. Or maybe you're at lunch and you text message with the person and you laugh, but you don't actually talk to the people you're sitting at lunch with. It's a kind of secluded idea. We make sure our garage doors shut so no one uh, will know that we're home. We like to smile and shake hands with people at church, but we don't really talk to them. In our neighborhoods, in our apartment buildings, or where we work, or in our dorm rooms, we give some small talk, but we really never are intentional. We never really actively engage. When we spend time with other families, we make sure they are like us, that they're Christians, and that everything's good and nice so it won't be weird or awkward. I think this honestly stems from a little bit of fear. Maybe we're afraid of what they'll think of us. Maybe we're afraid of if they'll laugh at us or afraid of what'll happen. 
And if I can press a little bit further here for a second, uh, we'll, we have these acquaintance relationships with our neighbors or our friendships with someone from church, but we really rarely go deeply and actively involved in their lives. We would much rather treat this like a tennis match. You know, or for those of you that don't play tennis, maybe you remember Mario Tennis on Nintendo 64. Either one, real tennis, Mario Tennis, either one. But you sit on the baseline and you just hit back and forth. This is really what we are with our relationships, right? We see our neighbor and we're like, hey, buddy. And he's like, what's up? And you're like, how's the weather? Good. Did you see the Razorbacks? Because we just want this small talk baseline conversations. We never charge the net, if you'll permit me to go with this analogy one step further. We never go forward and engage and are actively involved in the lives of the people around us. We're great with saying hi and waving and being nice, but we don't actively involve ourselves in their lives. This is a major issue I see in the church today. And I see it in our church today. Honestly, I think we've become blind to the needs of others or we've chosen to be blind to them. We'd rather put our blinders on and go, I've got enough to deal with on my own. I don't want to have to take care of anybody else. And what I see in the life of Elijah here is that he was aware and took advantage of opportunities to serve and be used by God. With his friends, with neighbors, classmates, coworkers, roommates, it doesn't matter. But we don't even see those needs anymore. We aren't intentional to be a part of their lives and we never step out actively. Look at this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are the ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. In Matthew four, when Jesus calls the disciples, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, we are the ambassadors of Christ. We are the light of the world. We are the fishers of men. You see that we are the ones that have been given the mission, okay? We're the ones that have been given this, 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 uh, this, this mission to this world. We're plan A, God doesn't have some other idea of how he's gonna reach the world. That's you and me. That's our job. We are the light of the world in this. We are the fishers of men. But if we're honest, the way we fish for men is we go to the the shore and we kind of are like, man, I hope a fish swims up and wants to get caught today. And little Nemo like pops his head out and it's like, hey, can I swim into your net? I'd love to get caught for Jesus today. And that's about as actively involved as we are. But see, fishermen in that day and age, they got in the boat, they paddled and sailed out to the sea and they were throwing giant nets into the water and pulling them back and big nets in the water and they'd pull them back and they'd throw them in and they'd pull them back. They were working and actively involved in where the fish were with the idea of catching fish, to be a fisher of men. So if we are Christ's ambassadors, it's our job to go do this. We have to take steps towards the world, towards the broken, towards our friends and neighbors. This is one of the great challenges for us today. That it's time we stop getting so wrapped up in our own world and we start to care about those around us. Now, we talk a lot about serving uh, in terms of uh, within the church or within an organization in town. And I wanna challenge us on that today. And this is not what I mean, is to work and serve in the church. When I see the example of Elijah, an opportunity to be used for God, I think that is personal for you and for me. 
This is not an organized, structured thing. This is the fact that you go talk to your neighbor. You cross the lawn and you say hello. You take a batch of cookies to the people down the hall. You wait till they answer the door and you talk to them. You ask your coworker to go to lunch and you get to know who they are. For too long, we have been blind and kind of turned a, a, a blind eye to what's going on. My mom uh, taught me a lot of great things. One of the top five is this, that people love to talk about themselves. So if you don't know how to do this, just ask questions. Ask questions. Then ask another question. Then ask another question. But I'll warn you, as we start to be actively involved in the lives of others, it'll get a little messy. When there's a divorce, they're gonna come to your house. When something happens in their family, they're gonna knock on your door. But isn't that what it means to be Christ to the world? Isn't that what it means to be actively involved in sharing Christ and showing Christ to the world? See, we all have to look at the story of Elijah and the way he was involved and actively uh, engaged in this family and take that as an encouragement and as a challenge to look and seek for opportunities to be used by God, to serve others, to love others, to step out of our fears for the sake of the gospel. Now see, the story doesn't end in 1 Kings 17. If we were to go on in 1 Kings 18, you see this magnificent moment in Elijah's life where the entire country has turned to worship these idols. They've been led by king after king to turn from God. And Elijah calls them out and says, we're gonna find out who the one true God is. And alone on the Mount Carmel, with all the adversity and all those turned against him, at that moment, that magnificent moment when fire rains down from heaven, we see the impact of God through one man. A man who is faithful to not fall in line with the inadequacies the world told him he had. A man who learned to trust God and to be shaped and developed for what was to come. And a man who stepped forward into opportunities to be used. This is the example we see. So today, our, our challenge, our, our, our kind of thoughts to kind of process today is will we follow this example of Elijah? We find our worth not in our past or our sin or our shame or our guilt, not in how we can prove ourselves, but we find our worth in Jesus Christ alone who died and was risen again on our behalf. When we follow the example of Elijah, that when we walk through the wilderness and the hard times of life, that we will learn to trust God fully, to give him all of ourselves, to be shaped and molded into the man that he wants us to be. Will we follow Elijah's example to be intentional and actively involved in the world that we're around, in the people that are around us? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of showing Christ, we will step fully into the opportunities to be used by him. And I pray that this church will fall in line with 
thousands of faithful believers who allow the Lord to use them and prepare them for magnificent moments. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word, for how it teaches us and how it challenges us, how it encourages us, how it speaks to right where we are. Lord, I pray that you will not allow us to leave here the same today, but that, Lord, through your word, you will speak to us. Lord, move us forward. Make us into your image. Draw us to trust you and rely on you more and more each day. Lord, that in our inadequacy, Lord, you find us adequate. You find us worthy. In our sin, Lord, you save us and you love us. You welcome us as sons and daughters. Lord, in the we will step forward into the opportunities to be used by you, that we will no longer turn a blind eye to those that are around us, but that we will step forward intentionally and actively towards them. Father, may your spirit be here with us. We thank you for Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, we remember that today, that all this stems from Jesus on the cross. Thank you for your grace. We pray this in your son.